0: To heaven their prayers flew up, nor missed the way, by envious winds, blown vagabond or frustrate, in they passed, dimensionless through heavenly doors, then clad with incense where the gold on the altar was fumed, by their great intercessor, came in sight before the Father's throne. Then the glad son presenting thus to intercede began. See, Father, what first fruits on earth are sprung from thy implanted grace in man, These sighs and prayers which in this golden censer mixed with incense I, thy priest, before thee bring fruits of more pleasing savor from thy seed sown with contrition in his heart than those which his own hand manuring all the trees of paradise could have produced ere fallen from innocence. Now therefore, bend thine ear to supplication. Hear his sighs, though mute, unskillful with what words to pray. Let me interpret for him me his advocate and propitiation all his works on me good or not in graft my merit those shall perfect and for these my death shall pay except me and in me from these receive the smell of peace toward mankind let him live before thee reconciled at least his days numbered though sad till death his doom which i to mitigate thus plead not to reverse to better life shall yield him Where with me all my redeemed may dwell in joy and bliss, made one with me, as I with thee am one.
1: Welcome to Redeeming Reads, a podcast where we interpret classic novels in light of the gospel. I'm Taylor. And I'm Dylan. And this month on the podcast, we are reading Paradise Lost by John Milton. Uh, the epic about creation and the fall from the Bible. But before we jump in and talk about John Milton and Paradise Lost and this really fascinating work of epic poetry, Dylan, what are you drinking tonight in terms of
0: coffee? I have a coffee from Bolt Coffee. It's called Heat Wave. It's their summer blend, and it's pretty good. It's a light roast. It's the lightest on the scale. And uh, they give notes of lemon-lime, hibiscus and tangerine and it's really good yeah i mean those are kind of like really you know bright and fruity notes and i think it's pretty i think that's pretty accurate um it comes off pretty acidic and it's kind of temperamental to brew i actually i've had to like um try to adjust the grind size um and in order to like hit the sweet spot with it um because it can be pretty like acidic a little bit more like sour tasting, and I don't know if that's the extraction or what, but it's different than some of the other coffees that I usually use, which is what I mean. But it's really good.
1: Sure. Was do you think your grind size was too coarse? Were you over-extracting? Was that the issue, or I think too, so. sorry, or too, too fine. fine? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'll do it. It's interesting I, though. I, I how, do, like... I do love a fruity, acidic coffee, but that is a, a kind of a downside that it can become too much, and then it's hard to drink.
0: Yeah, they can tend toward becoming like sour and zingy, yeah, definitely. You know? <laughs> in a yeah. bad way.
1: But... And that's not a taste you typically want in your coffee.
0: Right. <laughs> well, uh, so what do you have?
1: Uh, I'm very excitedly drinking water at the mm. moment, but I will say I'm in a hotel, I'm traveling, I didn't really have access to my typical coffee uh, for no tonight. No hotel but... coffee? <laughs> I, you know, I thought about it. There is, like, a tiny mini Keurig machine with some Ooh. K-cups in there, and I thought about that because I thought that'd be funny. Um, but <laughs> I can't. I just can't do it. I can't stoop that low. But I had a coffee experience <laughs> earlier today that I thought I would share because mm-hmm. I typically, again, I'm out of town, typically would never go to Starbucks for my coffee, um, but there is a local one, and I was mm-hmm. just looking for something to, mm-hmm. you know, kind of pick me up throughout the day. And uh, some of our listeners, and you may know, Dylan, that Starbucks is on a trend lately of putting olive oil in mm-hmm. their coffee.
0: Yeah.
1: I don't know if you're tracking with this. Have you tried anything? I have. Okay. Did we talk about this last time? Was the, was Did we talk about it on the podcast? I don't
0: think so. I don't think I talked about it with you.
1: Okay. I, I wasn't sure if we did, but I did try it for the first time. Um, and... That was an interesting experience. There were there were moments when I had it and I was like, "This is not that bad," and then other sips where I was like, "I wish I was not drinking this right now." <laughs> yeah. um, and it was really a, a kind of a love hate thing with it. Um, I don't even know. Actually, love is too strong. I would say overall, it was a mediocre experience. <laughs> um, it just felt unnecessary, and I think olive oil is too grassy. Yeah. For my coffee taste which is interesting because you could of course have a coffee bean itself that has a like a grassy flavor and that's just not something i gravitate towards so i guess i shouldn't be surprised that i was not impressed by olive oil as a flavor <laughs> but overall I was disappointed is yeah. is what i would say i guess Did, is was the what was your experience still with the olive oil
0: um yeah it, so i actually what happened with me is that I got the wrong one. So <laughs> <laughs> there's like three, at least at the one that I went to. And um, I meant to get the one that was just like, I don't know, most basic at to like being a normal coffee with olive oil but i think that like they tone it down for like the american culture because they don't want us to freak out or something and so they feel the need to have a really sweet one and so the one i got was like automatically flavored like hazelnut or something and i was yeah i immediately realized it was the wrong one or i saw on the sign that i ordered from it was like oh shoot there's like flavor in this so like that totally takes any objective take on olive oil out the window right because it's being influenced by some flavor that I don't really enjoy anyway, but it was fine. It just tasted kind of to me like, and it's probably the flavoring, honestly, just like any type of like, you know, flavored iced coffee you'd get anywhere. You know, I didn't really taste the olive oil until like, I guess like I licked my lips, which sounds gross. Right. But it's like, Ooh, it's like this like kind of yeah. film. However, I noticed that it also like, I might have had like an, like an allergic reaction or something. Oh my, no. my like throat was like, really itchy and like burning and uh, I think I had an allergic reaction it might have been to like the hazelnut flavoring or something like that um, oh, it was yeah. something like that probably but uh I don't know so I feel like I overpaid for it it was like $7 and I got the wrong one and I just wasn't happy with it but I feel like if I was in Italy like I kind of get what they're going for like if I was at like the Starbucks reserve shop in Italy and they had it there i would probably you know be into that but it just feels yeah, a little I... bit off but i don't know for like picking up a an olito olive oil coffee in rhode island just eh, like you know it's not gonna be <laughs> <laughs> yeah like yeah no good but i'm interested though i'm intrigued
1: sure F- fair enough yeah i i also i think they're creating this atmosphere around it i just don't know Mm -hmm. that it's ever gonna really catch on (laughs) you know they're they're advertising it as like it's the next like big thing in coffee and they're like innovating a ton it's like i just don't know Mm. that that's true it feels like a novelty it's yeah it'll be it's like putting it's like putting peppermint in your coffee like i like just just doesn't like it's the (laughs) same reaction for me it's like yeah, that's a certain flavor. If but you're trying why? to spin it
0: like it's something fancy that has always been done
1: exactly. in the coffee world. And I, I was just wishing that my coffee wasn't oily, you know? Like <laughs> <Yeah>. that's really, <laughs> it didn't taste like green. Yeah. I'm into like, yeah.
0: I'm into discovering new mouthfeels for coffee. I'm about that. That's fine. But.
1: Um, yeah, I don't know that oil is it for me
0: and it also settled at least in mine it was gross because it was like icy and then it settled and then because of that i think the temperature difference you could see the film of oil on top like like sticking like coagulated to the side of the plastic cup so yeah
1: yes i had the same experience and i think if there was a way to mix it like completely in without it doing that i probably wouldn't have had such a distinct taste every time um but I I think it's unavoidable that it's not going to perfectly mix. Let's talk about John Milton and Paradise Lost.
0: So my knowledge about John Milton is not um, bulletproof. However, I do know he was a Puritan author um, who, I think he lived in America, right? American colonial Puritan and like theologically Puritan um in the like 1600s so probably around the same time as someone like John Bunyan I don't entirely understand him theologically like from a theological angle right like a little I read a lot of Puritans so I have this idea that he is he has this kind of reformed reformation doctrine um, that's opposed to the prelate or the or the catholic church um and is like very like freshly protestant like in the protestant reformation vein um but I don't entirely know much about him. Um, I do know that this work, I think, was intended by him to be more than just like entertainment. I think he intended it for it to be an edifying experience to those who read it. And he, I think, saw it as service to God's church and the people of God um, as something they could both be entertained by and also learn. So, you know, it kind of is... There's was an aspect of it being really robustly theological and like in imparting theological learning and doctrine in a way that isn't reading a textbook. So I think he nails it on that end. Um, but I think we'll talk a little bit more maybe about some of his specific beliefs later, but even then, I don't really know too much about his, his personal life and history. Um, anything else that you happen to know? I, I will say that like a lot of the, um, a lot of, people in the larger, like, Christian literature, <laughs> I guess, world, or people are Christians who are thoughtful about literature really appreciate this work and think that it, like, stands the test of time. And clearly it does as a classic, but especially even among, you know, like-minded Christians who, um, you know, really appreciate literature like us. But what else would yeah, you say or do you know?
1: Uh, I would... I do know he was an English poet, so he grew English. up, um, lived in England. He went to um, uh, Christ College in, in Cambridge for okay. his education. And he was sort of, he was an interesting figure in some ways. He started off, I think, training for ministry uh, to be an Anglican priest, I believe. And okay, then, oh, so it was Anglican. Um, yeah, yep, I think, or at least early on in his life. But then he sort of became a combined political figure also, mm-hmm. um, as he went on through his life, just because of, um, there was English civil war at the time in the, in the mid, uh, 1600s in England. And he lived through that and he wrote, um, a bunch of, you know, political pamphlets and books that were addressing, uh, all of those, uh, kinds of things. And then, you know, throughout his life became known to be one of the greatest, english poets ever and maybe one of the greatest english writers ever partly because of his work here in in paradise lost um i know he had sort of a challenging life in some ways he he lost both of his wives at different points um when he was married twice i think and both of his wives died um from sickness and then he himself died um of sickness but he was able to publish um paradise lost when he was older he was like 60 years old already when he finally published paradise lost and had been writing it for a long time and it was sort of his um his epic and what he became known for for his entire life so definitely worthy of considering on the podcast in terms of um, classics it sort of squarely fits in that category and then obviously because of the content itself for us, it's it's an obvious choice uh, to address, you know, the gospel and, and the, the biblical narrative also. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And so it's a classic piece of literature that is revered by many in general, but it's also a piece of specifically Christian literature. Um, and namely, what is so profound about it is that it's written in an epic style. It's considered to be an epic, a long narrative type poem. Um, but what would you say makes Paradise Lost different than other well-known epics? I mean, for those who are familiar with literature at all, other epics that come to mind include like the ancient, um, you know, Greco-Roman epics like the Odyssey, um, Metamorphoses, the Aenid. Um, uh, why is this any different? what's the big difference here
1: yeah it's it's interesting i i did read that milton had set out to write um not primarily a biblical poem but he just sent out set out to write a epic after the greek epics and roman epics that you mentioned and he intended to do that originally and then he just ended up um choosing sort of as a secondary thing the the biblical narrative as his his choice and i think it's there's an interesting play there where he he wanted to write also sort of a tragedy but he couldn't decide between writing a tragedy and an epic poem and you see both of those components combined in paradise lost because he picks you know sort of the the greatest tragedy um, for christians of all time right we would say uh, in the fall and he builds the whole story around really that moment um, which in the biblical narrative is is just you know happens in one chapter in a handful of chapters and he builds this massive epic poem so his intent was to write an epic but also he the subject of of that had to be tragic and he really did that artfully and it was just something that I don't think had been done maybe to this extent before um, to sort of fuse the biblical narrative with the literary art form that was so revered, uh, you know, by this time from the ancient world and to sort of do both of those things together.
0: Yeah, so it's a retelling of the, not even really, the I would say like the first three chapters of Genesis really the genesis narrative and um but it's really more specifically just the fall of adam and into sin um it doesn't really start with creation i don't think um but and there's some other elements that clearly aren't in like directly in from the bible but i think that it um yeah just for those who don't aren't familiar with it that's the main <laughs> plot line is Um, Satan, I think, is one of, like, the main characters, really, and it's his, it recounts his, like, battle that he wages against God in order to tempt Adam and Eve to cause the fall, and which we believe is when all evil entered the world. But yeah, you know, what's interesting to me is that this is, like, a piece of epic literature, which, again, I may be wrong, but this is probably the first major epic that's the 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 stand or the the test of time like since those ancient (laughs) greek works so there's been like a 2000 year gap (laughs) well maybe not that long but um this massive gap so he's like returning maybe to this ancient genre but also trying to re-up it in some sense and it's like i think if i'm not incorrect i think it's like the first english epic that's written in this epic style
1: yeah i think you're probably right about that at least in terms of how much it's revered um i don't know that there's been an epic since paradise lost was written that is on par with it which is extremely impressive (laughs) Mm -hmm. um and you know just incredible that he could use english poetry to the same Mm -hmm. level uh, in many ways, as those ancient Greek writers did, and in the same style. Uh, you know, one thing I read about it was that you know he doesn't um, he doesn't really simplify. He uses the same like non-rhyming scheme that the the uh, ancient writers used mm-hmm. in their poetry, and he doesn't make it some like trite poem. It's mm-hmm. really truly an epic poem in that same vein. Um, And just, as you said, in the English language, uh, which makes it all the more impressive.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's like really a true theological treatise. It's like, um, you know, it covers really the whole scope is touched on. It's maybe not chronologically in the plot, but it talks about like from everything from eternity past to eternity future and the whole course of redemption of what Christ is going to accomplish like the last chapter is um i think what an angel (laughs) like consoling adam and basically foretelling to adam everything that will occur up until like the (laughs) through revelation um the full redemption until you know for through eternity um to console adam is like the whole chapter and it's to me it's like a pretty solid it's like a it's actually a really in-depth and robust view of the whole biblical history you know um but it's not a textbook it's a story and so there's something just really special and both edifying and also clearly entertaining about that you know there's something i think similar to how we might view i don't know like i think of the tv show the chosen if you've seen it you know it's like a yeah you know it's just a show about jesus but they try i think the aim is that they would um, make episodes that are based upon the text of scripture, but they also incorporate things that are, you know, certainly not identified in scripture, but are plausible realities. And I think that's similar yeah. to what he's doing here, right? There's a lot of different, like, imaginative flourishes that present themselves that aren't necessarily based in the Bible or biblical, and sometimes they're intentionally not so. To, like, make a point, maybe, um, he uses a lot of, and borrows from a lot of these Greek um, you know, epics in the past to kind of describe and color some of his characters but overall it's i think a fairly faithful retelling of uh you know a lot of what we know about the fall in the bible as the narrative but it also you know i think it relies on some theological inferences as well that you know um some people might interpret other passages in the bible from like the fall of satan and everything but um yeah it really is epic in scope
1: yeah it i am the introduction to my copy uh, the the author of the introduction said that at age 19 milton said that he would one day write on some graver subject that would permit his transported mind to soar above the wheeling poles and at heaven's door look in and see blissful deity <laughs> and he would later on this author says from earliest youth, Milton aspired to write an epic that would encompass all space and time. <laughs> yeah, he Which certainly can you know. imagine? Like, there's a level of, I don't know, I don't know if arrogance is the right word, but to be like, I'm going <laughs> to yeah. set out to write to write an epic poem that encompasses all space and time and did it. gives you a view of deity. But the thing is, he ends up doing it so well, albeit 40 years later. Apparently, <laughs> it took him that long, uh, but he does it so well that and i think what you were referencing with the chosen even and that feels like a bad comparison because yeah. i don't oh, yeah. know that you can compare anything to paradise lost but sure. when you combine the biblical narrative well with an art form which is really what milton does um, he takes the best literature uh, and combines it with the themes that you were just talking about all these theological ideas and you get something that's really beautiful and i think he sort of accomplished his goal of like having this view of heaven of deity there are moments when you're reading when you get that sense for sure um where you you feel like you have a better grasp of the biblical narrative um, because you're reading this work of literature like they feed off of each other uh and i think that's probably the best case scenario for any work you know done by a human and on the flip side you definitely see glimpses into his own biases and his own you know um Whatever things he was probably thinking about or struggling about when it comes to theological themes, or just the theological themes of his day, um, you get both in there. <laughs> um, but it's it's definitely an interesting combination.
0: Yeah, definitely. What were, definitely? What was your? Um, I guess what are your just some of your thoughts? Did you enjoy the book? <laughs> yeah, I
1: enjoyed it. I guess. Um, I had listened to it before in the past, and this time reading through, I realized how poor my Greek mythology is, um, and that's that's a takeaway um, for sure. And I think for any of our listeners who might consider reading Paradise Lost, it's there are moments when it is challenging to read. Um, I'll say that. Just because he makes so many allusions and references to things that I don't understand. Uh, so while I know the biblical narrative, there are a lot of references to the Greek epics that I'm just not aware enough <laughs> about to really appreciate what he's doing. Um, and that can make it challenging to read. And also just some like vocabulary things make it challenging. So there are moments, I would say, when it feels hard to grasp um, because uh, also just the medium of poetry if you sort of lose the meaning in one line, it's really hard to continue reading and and keep up that that flow of thought that he's using. Um, mm-hmm. And at the same time, some passages are like just incredibly beautiful um, depictions of, uh, you know, of of deity, of of God, of these theological themes. And he the poetry, In the same way that it might make it difficult i think enhances those moments and really helps you see them and experience them rather than just read them as a narrative like i I just don't think there's any way that paradise lost could have been written as just a normal plain old narrative uh it would not have the same effect in fact it'd be terrible because you would just be like this is a retelling of yeah of the fall basically um but the poetry as as the form is intended right it's a lot of writers, a lot of authors throughout history have viewed it as like a higher form of writing because it is maybe more accurate to the human experience and human emotion than um, than just narrative is. Um, and we see that you know in the Bible itself, and some of the earliest writing that humans ever made was in poetic form rather than as a literal, you know boxy narrative um, like we think about it. So, in that sense, hundred percent worth reading. Super enjoyable in many parts, and also challenging at times. If you don't have like the mental space to really focus <laughs> in on, on what you're reading, yeah. Uh, that was that was my experience overall as I read. What about you, Dylan? How yeah. how how did
0: it hit you as you were reading? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a super beautiful work. As you mentioned, the. Um... The writing itself is just incredible, um, and, but also hard to read. But something about it really does, um, it, it gets you out of the normal, like, mindset in which you read narrative. Because he's, like, intentionally trying to write in ways that are, like, luxuriating on a topic or a description. And he uses, like, you know, different phrasing. Like, he'll intentionally use an adjective After the noun as opposed to before it, which I think is like less old timey speech, which maybe was some present, but I think it was also just like part of the writing style and trying to make it sound like a higher, you know, having some higher kind of like dialect. But um, it really jolts you out of like, it's hard to actually even listen to. I tried to listen to myself and I couldn't. I had to actually read it in order to comprehend what and, and like almost read it out loud at times too. Um, But something in that it just feels really, uh, yeah. I don't know what to say. Like, um, yeah, I I would almost use the word like otherworldly. Like it, it's so different than the way that we speak and read and even read narratives like any other book. Um, it's just something poetic. And it's really, I mean, it's poem that doesn't rhyme too. like we in our, our modern idea and understanding of what we think of when we think of poetry is like verse that rhymes. But like originally that was not the case. And so there's something special to, um, stepping outside of our culture and time and even the way that we speak to read this and appreciate it. It really is like a piece of art um, for that reason alone, the way that you comprehend it. Um, but it also is super just like, it, it really puts meat on the bones of what happened in that, in the brief like three chapters, uh, the first three chapters of the Bible. Um, it encompasses so much emotion and, uh, And even like grief and sorrow like like you see the beauty of perfection like to the nth degree and you're like you know like just glorying and reveling in how good and perfect things were and then you like see adam and eve like the perfect couple and then it it's just that much more painful when satan finally like gets their succeeds in like tempting them and then it all goes to you know despair and and grief and sorrow and um, like every, you know, for me it's emotional just because it's like every teardrop of mine, every sorrow and grief, every illness and like death ever is all wrapped up in this story. And of course this is a retelling of the, I guess, real event, but um, man, it's just powerful to read it that way. And I think that even the unbeliever who disagrees with sin nature or um, disagrees with, you obviously the creation narrative or anything like that the atheists can still appreciate the art form and even just like how even if nothing else even how beautiful christian doctrine is <laughs> hopefully through this even if they don't maybe agree with it uh, i think there's good reasons to <laughs> do that and i hope this would point people towards that but otherwise i think anyone could still respect this who really values art you know there's some really like gruesome descriptions of like hell as a place um that just feels like you're you know looking at some like gruesome medieval painting (laughs) that's horrific Um, there's also really beautiful um descriptions of like paradise itself and like imagining what it was like for adam and eve to like have a banquet of like, fruit and, (laughs) like, sitting at the table, sitting down for a meal, like, in the garden before, like, mankind had, had, like, built things and um, also even just epic, like, heavenly wars of, like, you know, the legions of hell coming against and fighting uh, all of the angels of heaven. Just super epic, you know. Um, Yeah, really beautiful work of art.
1: Yeah, I think it gives emotion to many things that when we read it just in the the biblical text we don't feel because of the way it's written Um, but those long lengthy descriptions of of hell or of war or of satan himself and how he looks and feels and smell Mm. like it's crazy but it really does help elicit the emotions that i think that the bible intends often (laughs) yeah Um, maybe that's a a good way of
0: putting it he captures what the bible intends
1: yeah and and that he like fills in like you were saying the gaps like these plausible explanations for what could have gone you know what happened in those moments that um that we as modern readers because of the way the genesis is written just feels so short and and non-descriptive. he like helps helps the story come to life for us as modern readers who just often fail to have the the sight and the the experience of the text itself it's really um as you said it's it's a beautiful experience in a lot of ways
0: yeah and um like you said too it helps us just yeah grapple with the realities of scripture more because the, the bible itself is written really like in thrift in comparison to even any other works that we would read unless like, especially this one. But uh, for me, like my favorite passage in the whole um, book was at the end of book 12 um, or maybe the beginning, or maybe it's book 11 even. I forget where it was, but the intro passage that I read for this podcast is when Jesus intercedes for Adam. And that alone is just epic like insane (laughs) and it's not something like this book has it's led me to reflect on different like realities of scripture that scripture itself maybe doesn't like flesh out but um i mean milton i guess is sure making the assumption that like adam after he fell repented and believed in um you know like the future hope for humanity christ himself um who, like, we know from Scripture is identified as the second Adam. and um, But the just that passage of him, of Adam, that, that was after Adam repents and believes, and Jesus, like, intercedes on behalf of him. And it just made me then also reflect on the way that, like, Christ is interceding for all believers like us now, before the Father. And it p- gives a really beautiful picture of how he's, like, bringing up our prayers like incense like as the high priest before the throne of god just so so edifying to me um like i i wouldn't have expected um yeah but yeah do you have a favorite part of the book or passage
1: i do it's actually in the same book i think if it's in book 12 um i'm just gonna read it really quick a few lines at least uh this is sort of very at the very end when um when Uh, Michael, the uh, archangel, is speaking to Adam, and he's recounting, uh, as I think you mentioned before, just that redemption is coming. And he says, O goodness infinite, goodness immense, that all this good of evil shall produce, and evil turn to good, more wonderful than that which by creation first brought forth light out of darkness. Full of doubt I stand whether I should repent me now of sin by me done and occasioned or rejoice much more that much more good thereof shall spring to God more glory more good will to men from God and over wrath grace shall abound. Hmm. Um, the whole book, the whole of book 12 of the poem is full of lines just as equally as compelling as that one um, but Specifically in those lines, there's a theological idea called uh, Felix Culpa or the fortunate fall um, that is just one of those like subtly woven in themes. And I don't think anyone really knows whether Milton was espousing this, but, um, or if this was his personal belief, but it does seem to convey this sense that like God's plan, um, you know, in his sovereign plan, there was always this allowance for evil. Because in the end, it brought him even more glory and more goodwill for men. Um, That sort of the end result, even despite the fall, was greater. And that despite sin and death, um, God was working those things for a greater purpose in the end than we could possibly imagine. And at that moment, sort of Adam and Michael are surveying what God is about to do and rejoicing in that and that's just a really compelling idea for me both theologically and just um, as a source of comfort uh, definitely edifying as you just said
0: mm-hmm. yeah book 12 should just be published on its own like if someone honestly has questions about the gospel or what the bible is what redemption looks like um just read book 12. <laughs> it's a really great summary
1: I know a lot of people in, like, college have to read portions of the book. Um, So Brianna, my wife, read, put, you know, uh, a portion of it uh, in her college experience. And uh, it was not book 12, and I think that was a mistake. (laughs) She remembers a lot about, like, Satan's description in the early books, which is very true. And I was like, I feel like you missed, like, the best part, for
0: sure. Yeah, 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 totally. Now to kind of again turning back to that what we were talking about how Milton is intentionally interweaving these kind of Greco Roman mythological references and even at times like descriptions. Um, I guess I wanted to ask: Do you think that this adds a value to this like biblical retelling, or does that diminish it? Like not only because some of it's unrelatable, but like what is that? Like, is it, should he (laughs) compare it to something like, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like secular or like, is it even worth making the comparison? Like even, and and I'll say this, like for the listeners, I, you know, a couple of the descriptions of um, that at one point, like there's both sin and death are personified, personified as characters. And it's kind of a clever allusion to a Bible verse about how sin gives birth to death And so these are two characters in Hell. Yeah. Um, But they're kind of described um, just in in ways that I think uh, recall (laughs) Greek mythology with, like, um, yeah, in their description. um, There's a, you know, when Satan, after he successfully tempts Adam and Eve, he's cursed by God and he, like, he was some type of, like, serpent, you know, and then he, he. basically all his limbs, I don't know if, they, I forget if they fall off or if they just, like, disappear, but then he, like, becomes a snake that crawls, <laughs> and all of his other legions of, of demons, like, become a, a literal brood of vipers, <laughs> which is kind of, I think, an allusion to Jesus's condemnation of the Pharisees in the New Testament, Um but some of these, like, dramatic descriptions that seem to be somehow alluding to, like, the hellhounds of Hades or the Gorgon um, of, of, like, Greco-Roman mythology. Do you think that is needed? Do you think it was helpful? Do you think it was adding or diminishing value?
1: Um, I think I mentioned earlier that I struggled maybe with some of the, the Greek references. So, See, like I read on Percy Jackson
0: in middle school, so... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> is how I know a lot of it.
1: <laughs> that that's yeah, no that that helps for sure. And I, I understand some of the references, but like I just don't have the depth of knowledge. So on a personal level, I maybe didn't appreciate all of the Greek mythology references, but I well, sort of think. Say, that let it,
0: me ask it this way then: like, if sure. like, hypothetically, if he was like the whole time just comparing it to like, I don't know. Now it's like hard for me to think of. Like, it to like any other like sort of human story like throughout the whole thing it would seem odd right like it seems like the source material here like must necessarily um you know take precedent over anything else that comes after whether it be just like the like immensity of what it is or like this precedes all other <laughs> yeah. written mythology it's like comparing the uh, yeah silly comparison like every reference to being like a like to a marvel movie or something like just unnecessary <laughs> like why would that's like i could see the argument that that's taking away from you know it assumes that the person is more familiar with this and or this you know greek mythology in this case but it's just a weird comparison to bring into this con into this yeah
1: uh, maybe topic. i think i think the argument would be that but against yeah. that would be that uh greek mythology is sort of the archetypal story of western literature right like it's it i mean apart from the bible itself uh which undoubtedly is is probably the the biggest one so in that sense yes you're right that that comparison to the the original source material is there for sure but i think greek mythology in its own way plays such a major role that he couldn't have written this any other way. Like, if you took out all those references and he didn't write it in the style of Greek mythology, as we said earlier, I think it would lose its beauty.
0: Well, here's what I mean, actually. Well, less the style. Like, I, I feel personally that I, I just wish that they he took out all those references to, like, Greek characters. Sure. <laughs> like, yeah. um, I don't need... I don't know. I don't need Adam to be compared to um, Odysseus or something. Like in order to like understand who <laughs> yeah. Adam was. In fact, it's like I'd rather him. I'd rather the content and like the way that he's writing the like literary flourishes and even like retaining that like style of writing should speak for itself. I think. Yeah. Just I mean, just my opinion.
1: Yeah. No. I'm. I totally understand what you're saying. I think. I think. Or just my understanding of it is that he, and that's why I referenced earlier that he set out first to write an epic and then later on decided to write it about the Bible story, Mm -hmm. you know, or about the biblical narrative as a whole. And that helps me like situate it as like, that's why all of these references are there. I think if he was trying to do it the other way around, if he was like, I'm going to write a biblical epic poem primarily. Then it would feel backwards to include all of the epic stuff, but he was like, "I'm out to write an epic poem in the style of the Greeks." And then over time, he was like, "I really need to include the whole, you know, story of the fall and redemption," mm-hmm. and I'm going to do that by writing it about this. So it was like secondary, like the bu- the narrative of of the fall was the afterthought in this case, which makes me understand it. But I'm still with you that I I wouldn't have in it that way, <laughs> if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah.
0: Well, so far, a lot of our discussion has been related to Christianity and the gospel, just by nature of this book, <laughs> the, the subject matter here, of course. Um, but let's get into some of our more intentional uh, gospel reflections on how, as Christians, we should uh, use this piece of literature for our sanctification. Um, I wanted to start on this point, going back and circling to, back to Milton himself. Um, I think that some claim that this work is promoting a Unitarian rather than a Trinitarian perspective on God himself, namely that, um, that it's god almighty is like the monotheistic god without any mention of the godhead there's really i don't know if there's much divinity attributed to christ himself necessarily unless i missed it and i don't think that the spirit of god or the holy spirit is ever really identified as well so i don't know if that i don't know if these claims against milton himself are based upon that alone because that doesn't necessarily you know I don't think that you need to to have described all those features in order to, you know, be a Trinitarian. If you're a listener who isn't a Christian, that might be one of the primary issues of Christianity, that, like, it's just such a core Christian belief that the Father, Spirit, and Son are all together three persons within one Godhead of a monotheistic God. Uh, But uh, did you notice anything like this, Taylor, in your reading, or were you thinking about that at all?
1: you know i will say that did not occur to me in this but i feel like it's if people are basing it off of paradise lost alone as you said i feel like that's an unfair judgment to make Uh, because if you took any three chapters in the bible and expanded them into a massive story but those three chapters happen to not mention father son and holy spirit but only one of them it would seem skewed yeah. You know, like if you took like three chapters on Jesus' life, you'd be like, man, this thing doesn't mention God the Father at all. So it must be Unitarian. I think like, it's that more doesn't... like in the
0: book 12, even, the Holy Spirit is never like mentioned. But again, yeah, sure. Like, like, who said, like, okay, who's going to say it has to be? But still, it's push back against that. It's like, well, the Spirit is a pretty big, important <laughs> player in the yeah. New Testament, <laughs> in the life of yeah. the church.
1: Yeah. I It just seems to me like it would be. I don't know. I, not maybe particularly relevant to Milton's goal, you know, at, that, in what he's writing at that moment in that place in in scripture. Um, from say Adam's perspective at that moment, like I'm not sure.
0: Right.
1: I don't know. I don't. You know. That's I mean, That's sure. a great theological question. What degree did Adam understand <laughs> the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's like a whole thing. Like, we can't know. from. <laughs> From, right, exactly. And from Milton's point of view, maybe that's just sort of an irrelevant question. But I honestly, I think I'd have to go back to see if there was any allusions even to the spirit or anything that I missed. Um, but now that you say that, that is interesting that people assumed that based off of his writings, And it does make me wonder if there's any other things that, or any other writings by Milton
0: that would make
1: someone assume that.
0: For people who knew him personally, because that's a pretty major doctrinal <laughs> variant. Sure. But um, definitely, I mean, I'd say that like those who claim that, I think he shouldn't. I, I could see them like writing off this work as being like heretical or something not worth your time if you're a, an evangelical Christian. Yeah, I th- I don't think you can directly make that connection that it shouldn't be read. I mean, while else am yeah, no. reading? All these other secular books here on our podcast, anyway. If, you know, <laughs> right. not If nearly... there wasn't
1: something of value, even if it doesn't, yeah, totally. explicitly totally. match our our beliefs. Yeah. I guess a follow up question I have that I think is related in the theological theme. Um, one thing that people mention is, and we've briefly mentioned that there's this like emphasis in the beginning on Satan and sort of satan's perspective even on the fall like there's a lot of um dialogue from his point of view on what's going on which is a fascinating take uh to start with but um that has led people to view that or to see the the kind of conflict between god and satan as sort of a dualism in paradise lost uh that like this is a civil war and sort of maybe more of equals than of one like, you know, of thank God being more powerful than than Satan.
0: We would say that's a view that we shouldn't take, maybe because it diminishes yeah. God's power and sovereignty. Is that fair to say?
1: Definitely. And there's also some you know um, salvation questions there. Like, is this sort of a support of like I I got some vibes of. Um, like uh, the ransom to satan theory of redemption right that the main issue was that you know that god redeemed us uh not through substitutionary atonement but by primarily through a ransom payment sort of to satan um which sort of puts him on a different level that's been a like church history thing too um but i guess i was just wondering is that a sense that you got while reading dylan Uh, like that there is a implicit dualism or explicit
0: well there's definitely some passages that present themselves that way or at least are described that way like for example I think in the scenes where there's the holy war happening uh, between heaven and hell I think that like they go back and forth and like two of the battles are you know or one of the battles or maybe one or two is like won by Satan for a time you know but ultimately you know heaven wins and um when satan revolts against heaven um but at the same time i think in the beginning i, I want to say that like there's some dialogue or, or monologue rather i suppose from god or someone that already predicts what's going to happen <laughs> which like i think that in itself is a point that would assert that god's powerful and he knows what he's doing um and so is not a dualistic but i think from the perspective of satan who seems to be more like the main character in the intro and maybe shifts to be less so halfway through um from his vantage point he certainly believes in dualism. Yeah. <laughs> he thinks <laughs> that he's able to you know like show god you know um and that's the kind of the whole point of his narrative arc is that he and he, and he does like tempt adam right but um he ultimately does not win right um and his he's proven to be weaker than God. And so I don't think it's necessarily an assumption. I think it's displayed maybe because that's how Satan is experiencing things. But I think that it's, I think that like Milton, Milton's intention is for us to see that God is sovereign, even over that and even over the evil that Satan causes. Yeah,
1: no, I'm with you on that one. I think ultimately the text sort of disproves that. I think people probably just don't know how to handle Such detailed descriptions of Satan, or from Satan's perspective, (laughs) I just don't think that that happens very often, um, and that can be maybe confusing. You know, it's a very like screw tape letters esque of of uh, C.S. Lewis. You know, like that it gets that sense, and I'm not sure people are always comfortable with that point of
0: view. (laughs) Well, C.S. Lewis um, really liked this work. And now that you mention him, he actually I think wrote Paradise Regained. Yeah. Which is kind of like a spinoff sequel. (laughs) (laughs) Spinoff. I don't know much about it. This wraps into my next kind of question that I had for you. Actually, has to do with C.S. Lewis uh, as well. Um, There's many people who, many literary critics who interpret, or I should say, I think they reinterpret or impose. I think a false perspective on this, on this novel that Milton did not intend. I think it it's even taught this way intentionally in college courses and assumed that this is the way that you're supposed to read it is that um Satan is actually the mm. good guy and God is the bad guy and Satan's really just the first like you know rebellious soul who's like he's really the good guy like how dare this evil god try to restrain him from doing what he wants mm. to do and um even I'd say like I'm just going to read from the back of my penguin classics copy Um, there's a quote from someone named john Carey who describes this book as an endless moral maze introducing literature's first romantic satan (laughs) so in like in that critics description that was printed on the back of the book it makes this assumption that a the book is a moral maze like as if it's not clear like what you know why is god doing this but that's not the case that's not what milton was writing about in Milton, like Milton was taking an orthodox evangelical view that like God is good, Satan is evil, and here's the story of how it happened. It's, I think, fallen humans, ironically, who we are the ones who get mixed up with that, you know, and try to say like, well, really Satan, you know, I think he's actually the good guy. Um, And also just putting him on a pedestal as like, wow, like literature's first romantic, like, man, like we can relate to that yeah. you know? <laughs> as being the villain, you know. Um, and really he's just like misunderstood, you know, We're more like him, but there's so much irony in that perspective on this t- book at all. But um, I think we would clearly disagree. Um, it's funny. It's even such a major interpretation of this book that it's just, I want to push back against so much. Um, that even in the full introduction of my book, there's a lot of uh, like pages taken up talking about this and these different perspectives on like, oh, it was intended for Satan to be the good guy versus like other views. And it's like, no, he's clearly not. He's just the bad guy. And you need to accept that. C.S. Lewis is one of those voices who is quoted as he says something to the extent um, in talking about this book that he says, people who interpret it, that way who don't like milton's god just don't like god (laughs) (laughs) yeah which i thought was like bold and kind of witty and funny but also i think true yeah um or at least the biblical description of god for people to have to want to reinterpret it like this and assume that that's the proper interpretation to take you know most natural maybe because it is what comes most natural Um, but my question to you taylor is like what's your opinion on those types of reinterpretations and then a follow-up to that, it's like, should we choose to interpret literature in general however we want? Hmm. If, right? Yeah. And then third, if not, if that's bad to do, if we should only take the author's interpretation, then how is that any different? Than what we're doing here on Redeeming Reads. <laughs> oh man, those are my—that's my threefold question to you. That is written out on my notes, so you can reference it. <laughs> Listen,
1: opening a can of worms, right? Right here. Um, yeah, I okay. My first initial impression to what you said is, I think that that whole argument ties into the um, to the fortunate fall thing I was talking about, because mm. part of that that issue is that people struggle with the God that I think with how the bible presents god to begin with i think you nailed it when they were like or or c.s lewis did when he said they just don't like god in general because they can't stand that there could be a god that allows evil or even plans for evil but has his has a better plan than they could think of in that evil it's like this is the theodicy the question right that's been around forever I mean how can a, a good god allow these bad things to happen and I and think I
0: would say too some of the perspective that's in that camp is also just because they see god as like a lawgiver <laughs> like that alone makes him like oh yeah bad like his his authority alone equals bad authority like how dare he create laws right that any authority is negative yeah, yeah. definitely
1: but i think that that fortunate fall piece is like rolled into that like a a sovereign god who who has the foresight to be able to plan all of that evil that satan did and still work it for good and his glory is unfathomable to people um and i get that that's a and that's a complex thing so like i i i sympathize with you know, even Christians who struggle with that. Oh yeah. Not
0: all Christians would affirm that God is sovereign in that regard too. Definitely. And and that's,
1: that's what I mean. Like, and, and, um, I, I personally think the Bible's clear on that, but I understand that there's, it's not like laid out, you know, maybe as clearly as people would like. Um, I'll say it that way. Um, and so I think C.S. Lewis is right in that sense that just part of that is, um, is is what's happening in this book specifically and the solution then is that satan is the moral being versus god which i think again is ridiculous um and and not what milton was going for um should we choose to interpret literature however we want is that the second question
0: um yeah so that you know, I think some people really are convinced that's how, what, how it was intended to be written, which I just think they don't know about much about John Milton or Christianity or Puritanism, if that's the case, or wherever John Milton comes from, I guess. Because um, that's clearly not his stance. Yeah. Satan is good. Yeah. Um, but, so if not that, then, you know what, I want to interpret it this way, and I want to teach it this way, because <laughs> I feel like that resonates better.
1: Yeah. I think, ultimately, this humanity. is... humanity yeah yeah i think this is ultimately a uh obviously a massive discussion in the history of interpretation in general um they and are, christian yeah. hermeneutics is you know the fancy um term for exactly what we're asking here and uh while i think people have the freedom to interpret however they want i <laughs> yeah. disagree um all any interpretation being valid um i think there are some constraints on how we should read and interpret and part of that at least is governed by the author's intent in writing um and part of that is just a conviction about how we read the bible right that it it can you know we say things like "It, it can never mean what it ever meant um just meaning that it is tied ultimately to its original context um the flip side is that also has life outside of that context right and i think possibly an overemphasis on one can kind of kill the other right it's like well if it's Mm -hmm. only relevant now then it meant nothing then and if it only was relevant to those people in that specific time then why is what is the purpose of reading it today and i think that flows into maybe your last question like uh yes in some ways we definitely are reading with a bias Um, we are just choosing to read with the bias we think is the best explanation of the world (laughs) if that makes sense Um, that we are sort of reinterpreting or I don't I don't want to say reinterpreting that we are interpreting novels based on what we think is the archetypal story of the universe of the greatest story ever written that God you know redeemed simple man through the death of his son we think is like the core story of human beings so every story therefore is an echo of that one um and because we think that's archetypal i don't think it's misinterpreting um in some ways because it's so foundational the biblical story it it, it it's it's so central to what we believe that it's echoed in every single other thing that humans have ever written, basically um, and and that doesn't feel like a stretch to me, but I also understand that for people who don't view the world through that lens that that's basically an unintelligible argument. you know what I mean? like it just doesn't make sense to them, and so from that point of view I get that it would just feel like we're interpreting however we want does that ring true to you at all Dylan
0: Um, I think Milton would be upset that people are interpreting that Satan is the hero yeah (laughs) like plain plain and simple therefore I think the audience ought to receive it the way that Milton intended for it to be received or else you could also interpret other books however you want to like I don't know it hypothetically opens up the, the floodgates to like interpretation on anything um, you know, you could think that, uh, you know, Moby Dick is about, you know, World War II or something. I don't know. <laughs> Which is like, uh, I don't, um, I, that's just like a fake example. But then again, I also, it reminds me of our discussion on the old man in the sea, Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. Where like, we try to reach so much into that and we do <laughs> and we find meaning and grasp, like real meaning about like how we struggle. Yeah. Whereas Hemingway would say like, it's about a fish.
1: An old man and a fish. Yeah, like he would yeah. say there's like
0: there's nothing to it, like you know. And he maybe he's even being facetious. I don't know because there ha, there just has to be. I'm convinced. <laughs> anyway, I'm but now I'm doing what I've just said. You shouldn't do. But um, then again, I'd also expand the question to encompass all art in general too. And there, I think of you know a lot of more like postmodern like painters, for example. Or there there is some you know validity to artists who want their art to be perceived openly and like you know, an artist who wants to know what the audience sees in it and like a piece of art or something, which is different than maybe more classical, like works of art that were like supposed to be intentionally symbolic and have intentional contrast. And like, you know, to enjoy this painting, you have to, you know, embrace what the author was intending rather than how it quote unquote feels to you. You're not truly embracing it in that sense. Whereas there's other like whether it be music or, or, or just even modern art now, like I think if the, I think that we need to respect the author's intent always to appreciate it rightly and fully, um, unless maybe the art, artist or author indicates that they intended it to be open to interpretation. I think that we <laughs> should be constrained, to however, the artist or the author wants us to receive it or other or elsewhere. Um, you know, we're just taking a subjective take on it. That, you know, maybe that resonates more with us. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's the fullest picture of what they intended for us to receive. So, anyway, but I do think that's different than what we're doing here. Um, I don't think we're trying to reinterpret books necessarily. Even I'm trying to think of like some that really don't fit with our worldview at all. That we're trying to like quote unquote redeem. You right? know what? Like some of the books we've read.
1: Yeah. The the at the mountains of madness yeah i was gonna say yeah yeah, definitely (laughs) stands out (laughs) there we go
0: like that but we're not interpreting that we're not reinterpreting it yeah i don't don't... we're we're trying to interpret it the right way but then we're reflecting on it i think is maybe the key difference here is like having interpreted this way like what can we take from that interpretation that's helpful you know but we're still aiming i think to receive it the way the HP Lovecraft wanted us to. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then just with whatever we get from that, how as Christians should we understand it? I think the key
1: is is finding meaning versus reinterpreting. Or creating,
0: uh, unintentionally creating meaning that isn't...
1: Yeah, and and creating meaning from our own point of view to some people, but I think Mm -hmm. what we're really trying to go for is meaning that is universal because it's related somehow to the the biblical yeah. narrative and the story of redemption. Or maybe even
0: like the meaning itself is fixed or should be maybe fixed by the author. But yeah. how we apply that meaning in our lives and what that meaning means for us <laughs> <laughs> maybe is the piece that we're trying to reflect on here.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Well, in the end, how are you edified by this poem just as a christian how did it impact your christian life
1: oh man i mean just based on the conversation we were just having i think there's a ton of edification just in like theological thought um and you know i think for me that that combination again of like beautiful art and pretty solid theology or at least really thoughtful theology is something that I want to see all the time and experience all the time Um, it's about as good as I could hope for in the world that we live in you know um, to to experience both of those things at the same time so I think um, that's something I'm gonna take into you know other books I read and and just the world that I live in Mm -hmm. what about you how were you edified
0: Um, I was I think more um, what's the word? It made me see the the real depth and horror of sin and evil mm. and within my own heart, within the world, the, you know, injustices in the world, my own uh, sorrows that I bear and that I cause. Um, and that also in turn just gives a fuller appreciation for the grace of God extended in Christ Yeah. to sinners to save us. And uh, therefore, it results in worship, right, and again, even there, even in that i I would argue is a pattern that has been present since the fall of that Felix culpa is that I am glorifying God in a greater way, he's getting more glory and receiving more glory to his name because of my custom-made, tailor-fit tailor suffering in life or evil that I've had to endure terminates on his glorification. So it's for my good and his glory ultimately. So um, that's just edifying. It just, fo- it helps me, yeah, but like I said, but more meat on the bones of the um, of the gospel that I believe and think about different ways that like of just how perfect Adam and Eve were how beautiful man and woman are together united in marriage Mm -hmm. like it just exemplifies it and, and you know it helped me just attain to a higher view of like everything from sin and evil and wickedness having you know a high or like deep view of that maybe to a high or deep view of like god's glory and uh just you know everything in between and uh, just made me appreciate the gospel more. Yeah, definitely.
1: Well, thanks for joining us through our journey in Paradise Lost. Uh, we hope uh, you also take something away and maybe even go on to read Paradise Lost. Let us know what you think if you've listened this far. And uh, we hope you'll join us next month.
0: Next month we're reading Catcher in the Rye. I know nothing about this book. I just know the name and I've seen the cover at the bookstore <laughs> every time I like go. <laughs> I know it's controversial. I've heard that it's been banned in some like classrooms and stuff. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, it'll be great. Right, right, we'll join us next month.